Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi there, welcome along to this week's High Performance Podcast. As always, you can find us not just here where you get your podcasts. You can also track us down on our YouTube channel. Just search for the High Performance Podcast. You can see extended versions of all our interviews there. You can also find me, Jake Humphrey, on Instagram. Damien Hughes, our extremely learned professor, is at Liquid Thinker. And of course, you can follow this podcast on Instagram as well, at High Performance. Thank you so much for all the reviews and the ratings this week. They do make a huge difference to us a lovely one here from neil humphrey can i just point out we are absolutely no relation um he says in a world filled with negativity almost everywhere this podcast gives you a huge dose of positivity and truly inspires you to take 100 responsibility for your actions and another one here from kjf 1414 via apple podcasts who said that they were looking for a new podcast for a while they stumbled onto this one and it's everything they were looking for and more he also wants us to get Thierry Henry on it, so we'll we'll find their way of getting hold of Thierry Henry. He'd be an amazing guest. Talking of amazing guests, this is what's coming your way this week. This is what I'm really into. And go back to what my dad said, you know, if you're really into it, this is what you really want to do, then you're going to be the best. And so from quite an early age, I had that focus that I really wanted to try and be the best. We can't wait for you to hear this episode. Just a reminder that it was filmed before the coronavirus pandemic, so there is no mention of lockdown or the impact on the sporting world for this week's particular guest. Um, and talking of the impact of the coronavirus, Lotus Cars really stepped up when it matters. Look, we know them for producing the beautiful Evora or creating the new electric hypercar, the Avaya. Well, during the coronavirus shutdown, they were actually producing people PPE to be used on the front line in the fight against the virus and I'm so so proud that Lotus Cars are our sponsor for these podcasts of course you can find them at Lotus Cars across social media if like me you fancy driving a Lotus I can tell you it is an experience well worth doing right time to get on with it it's time for this week's high performance podcast Hi there, thanks for joining us. I'm Jake Humphrey and you're listening to High Performance, the podcast that delves into the minds of some of the most successful athletes, visionaries, entrepreneurs and artists on the planet and aims to unlock the very secrets of their success. Today we're on the south coast of England, the home of sailing. We're in Portsmouth to be precise and as always alongside me, the youth and the brains of the operation. Is that fair? (laughs) (laughs) It's very generous. Yeah, I know. Uh, My co-host, psychologist, professor, author, Damien Hughes. Um, I've got a slight sore throat, so I'll let you do most of the talking today. But (laughs) I'm I'm particularly intrigued by our guest today. Are you? Yeah, I'm absolutely uh, ecstatic to come and actually spend some time and pick his brain. See, I'm really interested in the fact that this individual that we're about to introduce spent four years getting ready for something 
and then had a, like a moment to deliver. Like I get nervous if I've got a week to prepare and then do a good job. When you've got four years, the, there's a lot of resting on it. So listen, let's get going and introduce a man who started competing at the age of eight, was on the world stage at 12, an Olympic medalist at 19, and now in his 40s, He's a four-time Olympic champion. He's been knighted by Princess Anne and leads his very own team in the multi-million pound sailing challenge, the America's Cup. Like, that's quite a good CV, Ben Ainsley, isn't it? Sounds it's right. okay, but it's, it's, it's missing one thing, which is, which is winning the America's Cup for Britain. See, that is what I find really fascinating straight away. I talk about all of your achievements and you immediately take the conversation to a place of something that you haven't yet achieved. It's what's next, yeah. Or is it's it always that like that? With you? <laughs> yeah. Well, no, I think it. Yeah, I think so. I think it's. Yeah, I remember actually the first um, Olympics I won. I had a silver medal in '96, and I managed to win the gold medal in 2000. And I remember getting on the airplane home and sort of sitting back and thinking, "Ah, oh, you know, that's it. I've done it. What? That's. I don't need to worry about anything else again." And that that feeling lasted for about 24 hours yeah. <laughs> and then and then it was okay what's what's next what's next uh, and then to the point and actually after those olympics i sort of suffered i guess probably you hear about it a lot damien but it's sort of post olympics in in my case or post event blues of you reach a milestone and then you haven't really got anything else planned and you're at a loss because you for all those years you've been waking up early getting to training focused on one thing and then it then that's it it's over and and so for me that's quite a good lesson learned okay you've always got to have a plan so whichever the olympics i went to after that i always knew straight away after you know what was what was the plan what was i work what was i working towards so that helped really i think from a career wise and 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 a focus to, to move on so you the kind of guy that always needs to have something like we're sitting here we're in your office at your team's headquarters you haven't just decided to do something mildly interesting after retiring as an olympian you've decided to try and do something that we've never managed to do in this country before is that part of this for you you have to have a really big decisive dynamic goal to aim for all the time in your life well it's certainly it's certainly help, helpful uh to, to to have that to have that drive but i don't think it was well, maybe it was conscious. I mean, when I was a kid growing up, I had two goals really in, in being passionate about sailing. And one was the Olympics, obviously, and then the other was the America's Cup. And like you say, this history, the fact that the race started around the Isle of Wight in 1851 and no British team has ever won it, despite trying on numerous occasions and getting really, really close. And so as a, as a kid, that was always a passion and ambition. So I guess in a way it was natural going out of the Olympics and then turning that focus and attention to the America's Cup. But if that wasn't there, I don't know. I don't know if it would mean that I'd have to find something else, whatever it is in life, to have, yeah, yeah. have, a, have a clear focus. But what age were you, Ben, when when that those two things came into sharp focus for you? So you say, is it during childhood? Yeah, I was about 11 or 12 years old, and I grew up in Cornwall, and I, and I learned to sail at a fantastic sailing club called Restrongit Sailing Club, a local club near Falmouth in Cornwall. And so getting into dinghy racing and, you know, in that stage, I think it was the 88, 18, uh, 80, was it 88 Olympics and then 92, um, Linford Christie. Yeah. yeah. And watching those Olympics and being really into sailing and then, you know, thinking, well, there's a potential there. Even as a 12 year old, maybe, maybe, maybe I could set my sights to one day being at the Olympic Games. And then also at the same time, there was a British America's Cup team that was actually training in, 
in Falmouth, um, which is called Victory, uh, the Victory Challenge. And they'd raced, uh, I think they were racing for the 88 America's Cup, 89 America's Cup. And seeing those boats, these amazing 12 meter boats sailing around the harbor, it's incredibly powerful and graceful. And then learning a little bit about the America's Cup, that's what really stoked that ambition for me really with the America's Cup alongside the Olympics. So although you were seeing that, though, like Jake and myself were talking about this idea, Ben, of um, this concept of the golden seed that Freud talks about, everybody needs somebody that believes in you long before you might believe in it yourself. So although you were seeing these amazing things, who was it that gave you that belief that you could be part of that, that was part of your narrative? And uh, I think a couple of key people. My dad was one. Uh, he was fantastic support through those early years getting into the sport and instilling me the, 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 the focus, I, really, I think, and the determination. I mean, there's one great anecdote I, I often go back to where I was doing a practice race at the club and I didn't do very well. Oh, I, I was a bit unlucky and I sort of half gave up. And anyway, I got back home at the end of the day and, and my dad, sort of as he was apt to do, asked me how the race went. And I sort of said, oh, well, you know, I was, I was doing really well, but then I was unlucky and this and that happened and it was just really unlucky and uh, I didn't, you know, finish third or fourth or something. And he, and he said, pause for a moment. And he said, well, that's really interesting because I actually happened to watch the race. And I saw that you gave up, you know, so I was a bit stumped. And he said, look, if you want to really excel in, in sport and do really, really well, which I think you want to do, and I'm happy to support you to do that. But if you're going to really make it, you've got to give it 100%. And was you can't, right? Absolutely. You, you can't give up. You cannot. And you, you have know, given at any up. Point, yeah. At any point, you cannot give up because as soon as you do that, it's, it's, yeah. you're never going to get back. And, it, and I was only about 12 or 13. And it wasn't, he wasn't ranting. He was just saying, look, you know, I'll support you, but I'm only going to do that if you're going to commit everything and, and you, you can't give up. Uh, otherwise, if you just want to take part, that's fine, but don't, you can't really expect me and your family, you know, to, to drive around the countryside to events as you do and, you know, when you're competing at that level and, and so on. And uh, and that really, as I say, it really struck a chord where I, I felt, no, he's, he's right, I've got to commit to this. Well, so even being at that young, relatively young adolescent age, that, that yeah. cut through the yeah. bluster? it did. And then another guy who was really instrumental for me in my career, and actually many others in, in sailing, he was our chief youth coach in the, in the late 80s and 90s. It's a guy called Jim Saltonstall. And he was a fantastic, he was probably one of the best motivators I've ever met. I mean, he was a good sailor. He was a sort of world-class sailor, but he wasn't, he wasn't an exceptional sailing talent himself, but he had a really good understanding of the basics of the sport and, and going through into racing nationally and then internationally. But where he was exceptional, like I say, was in instilling belief that we could we could go on to achieve great things. And at that point, we didn't really have, I think we had in 1988 Olympics, we had one gold medal in 92, I think we had a, a bronze medal. Yeah. We weren't really performing that well in sailing at the Olympic Games or internationally, really. Yeah. And he was a guy instilled in my generation to say this, that we could go out and we could be world beaters. It's similar to what you're doing here. You're trying to create something that hasn't been done before. So belief is, is based on the frames of reference that you know what is possible to get you there. So how, how did Jim do that at that young age? Well, yeah, and, it, and it's huge. And it, and, it, and it was really just giving us the confidence that we could go out and, and win because no one was really winning internationally. But he said, well, you, you, you absolutely- Was you, it just words you or guys, did he have techniques that he used? Uh, it was to... a lot of the coaching was really good, but like I said, it wasn't, it wasn't 
as though there was some amazing technique that he had that no one else had. I think it was a lot of it was just the basics, but it was about really the biggest thing he gave us was that instilling that belief that we could do it. And really telling me, he took me through and, and my generation of really, really successful sailors through our youth careers. And then I met him at a, at a, at a dinner after, uh, after the Sydney Olympics, I won a gold medal. And he said to me then, and then sort of this continued on, he said, well, you know, I think, you know, and I had no real concept of this at that point, but he said, I think you can win four or five gold medals. I think you, you had that ability and you should be trying to achieve that. Yeah. You know, and then I was like, oh, well, yeah, that, yeah, nice idea, but you know, but he was, he was absolutely right. And again, it was just giving people that, you know, belief that you can do it and, you know, and then you've got to obviously have the self-driving determination and you've got, sure. to have, you've got to have the assets and the facilities to do it. But just having someone saying, come on, you can do this. But he would have been saying that though to lots of other people, right? None of the other people managed to get four Olympic gold medals. But right from early age, there must have been something about you that was a little bit different. <laughs> not in a good way, not in a weird way. Uh, but all, well, I think, yeah, I mean, I was clear, clearly really, really determined. I was really determined and, and sailing was the one thing that I was good at. You know, I played cricket and rugby and football at school, hockey, and I was okay. I sort of mm. made a few of the teams and so on, but it wasn't something I was exceptionally good at. But sailing was something I clearly, I really, really loved, really passionate about it, even from a really young age. And I was, was doing okay. And then, that, so I saw that as my, well, yeah, this is what I'm really into. And go back to what my dad said, you know, if you're really into it, this is what you really want to do, then you're going to be the best. And so from quite an early age, I had that focus that I really wanted to try and be the best. Didn't mean I expected necessarily I was going to get there, but that was my, that was my goal. So I know it might be a semantic point on this, Ben, but that's an interesting one because I like the message you said about your dad's thing of, if you're going to do it, commit to do it. So did he ever put the pressure on you that you had to win that idea of being the best? Uh, he, he's, I, th I think looking back, I think, uh, you know, I'm really grateful to my dad in setting about the right balance. You know, there were a couple of times where he, he you know, he'd better get a bit, you know, grumpy because, and frankly, I was grumpy because I, you know, hadn't had a good, good event or whatever. But there was never, he never put any pressure on me to get results or if you don't do X, Y, or you don't achieve right. such result, that's it. We're going to stop or anything like that. He just wanted to, you know, he just wanted to help support me. I think he could see that I was into it enough that I didn't really need, you know, other than that one comment that he made, I didn't really need any more motivation. It yep. was, it was there and he just needed to try and support it. Um, it was more me actually getting upset if I wasn't getting the results. And how did he handle those moments then? Uh, pretty well, you know, if I'm now I'm much more mature and I look back, you know, I wish perhaps there were times when he, he, he maybe could have helped me get through that disappointment. I think when I was younger, I really didn't handle disappointment that well, you know, right. I'd get frustrated and, you know, maybe lose the plot or whatever, you know, not enough, but just lose that focus, yeah, which yeah. we all know when you're in the heat of competition, yeah. you can't afford to do that. And so it took me a while to learn that myself, really, that, you know, if things went wrong, I needed to regroup pretty quickly and get back on track. Yeah. And then fast forwarding to when the Olympic years began, I'm really interested how you can train and train and train for four years. And of course, you're competing in other sailing events, but what really resonates with people around the world is the Olympics. So when you've trained for four years and there you are in an Olympic final, how do you focus your mind on just performing on that day, not allowing 
the thoughts to wander to four years of effort, all the people that have helped you to get to that point? What's, what's your trick for delivering on that day? Well, there's a great saying, isn't there, that luck is preparation, looking for an opportunity. And I think for me, that was, that was the key. I had to, if I'd done the preparation, then yeah, there was pressure and expectation, probably more so from within than, than externally. But if, again, if I'd done the preparation and I knew I'd done everything I could, and then it actually, the trick then was to enjoy, enjoy the moment, enjoy the challenge of being in that high pressure scenario so learning to actually enjoy that yeah. rather than being so afraid the preparation of it. gave you the serenity to think listen i've done everything i possibly can i'm the best prepared person yeah. on the water yeah so come come that on probably allowed you, you to know. perform properly yeah i think so i think i think so and and that's certainly how i managed to deal with it i've had but when have, did have that dawn on you then ben so because you said that this idea of learning to control your emotions and things like that was something that it was a process you went through when did that yeah, it's very much tri trial and error. Uh, the first Olympics I went to, uh, 96, I was close to the gold medal with uh, Brazilian sailor Robert Scheidt and just narrowly lost out and the final race made a bit of a mistake on the start line and sort of reviewing that, sort of realised that maybe I'd, I'd let the pressure of the situation and the expectations get to me a bit and, and in a critical moment on the start, yeah. lost that focus and made the wrong decision. And they're on, they're on in really moving between 96 Olympics and 2000 Olympics. And again, coming to this final race showdown against, against Robert, uh, it was about how to, how to control those emo emotions a bit more and, 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 and execute better really. Yeah. And what, what techniques did you use then? I, I think it, again, it came, came down to um, the preparation and then yes, it was, you know, super high pressure, once every four years revisit of what had happened in 96 um, but also in that time there'd been some other big events where I'd managed to beat Robert at the world championships and so on and again we'd had close races and tight races and and learning from from each one of those getting more confidence that I could I could deal with those those high pressure situations what was the conversation you were having with yourself at, at that moment while you were standing there on the start line Oh, I was just really focused on the on the process, really, of, of what I needed to do, and and so to the Sydney race, for example, yeah, it was quite complex in terms of the point scoring and sailing. But I had to try and get Robert down to the back of the fleet in order to secure the gold medal, and that was a really big big challenge given his ability as a sailor. And you can't just do that by ramming a guy off the track. You've got to use the rules and everything. It's and it's quite complex, but. That was a big enough task, really, in itself. I like the so way you even considered just... running him off the track. It's like, ah, oh, <laughs> can I just smash his boat yeah. out the water? Yeah, I did consider it, but sad sadly, it was it wasn't quite that wasn't quite fair. So uh, it was just you know focusing focusing on that task and and not not being distracted. But then go back just a bit earlier in that process, and but like the night before, for example, because I like the idea that, like you say, you're going through. I've got evidence that I can do this, You've, and that's where your belief is coming from. Like, so did you formalize that process the night before the race? Well, I had to, I had a plan A and a plan B yeah. and there were two races on the last day and a lot depended on how that penultimate race of the series went. Uh, unfortunately, Robert had a better race than I did. And for me, it was then at that point, just trying to keep within distance. So I could still had a shout to win going into the last race. And I made that by about one or two points. So I was on a knife edge already. <laughs> And then very quickly I was into plan B, which was, well, 
I've got to use the discard system, which, as I said earlier, meant the best chance to 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 try and confirm um, winning the goal was to was to sail Robert to the back of the fleet rather yeah. than. I could have take, taken the strategy that if I I'll go and try and win the race and I had to, I think if I won the race, Robert needed to be outside the top 10 or 12, which realistically it was a 45 boat fleet. But like I said, his talent and ability, it was, that was a pretty risky yep. scenario. Whereas if I took him, if I could execute the plan of sailing him to the back of the fleet, then that would guarantee gold medal. And so that was my plan B. And in a way it was easier, the fact that after that that penultimate race it was pretty clear i only had one option mm. that actually made life even though it's a pretty extreme option quite it, a ruthless it, option it, as well it, isn't yeah, it it made life a lot simpler really and and so I just had to try and execute that four years previous when you were in atlanta had you had that 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 plan b in your back pocket or was that something that you'd learned in that four years yeah i didn't really have only had uh, i didn't really have too many options in that in, right. in, in atlanta um you know because of, of the, the point situation um, so it's slightly different, um, but I definitely I was a wide-eyed teenager in Atlanta and sort of blown away by the Olympic experience. Yep. And actually, I wasn't expected to win. I wasn't really probably even expected to get a medal. Um, and the fact that I was challenging for the for the gold medal um, was, you know, like I said, I was I was perhaps a little bit out of my depth. Interestingly, my initial response on losing out and not getting a gold medal was I was totally distraught because then I, even though I was only 19 years old and I ended up having many more opportunities. In sailing, you only get one spot per nation. And in a you know sailing nation like Britain, where we've got a lot of talent, you, know, you might only get one opportunity to go to an Olympic Games. So straight away, my thought process was like, you know, God, I've this may be the only may be the only chance I've have in my life to win a gold medal, and I've yeah. blown it, you know. And so I was pretty distraught at that on moment. On a couple of occasions, Damien and I have tried to get you to talk about the emotion of sailing in an Olympic final, and straight away, your answer has moved on to the process. Is that is that fair? You you don't really allow yourself to go to emotional places when the pressure is on, and you actually think, right, I know exactly how to win this race by executing A, B, and C. So that is, so all your energy and all your spare capacity goes on the process of winning rather than the emotion. I think so, yeah. Uh, and it's interesting emotion. I hadn't really, I've, I've, I, you know, maybe it's just subconsciously you think about the process a lot. I've never really, never really thought about the emotion of winning that much, other than actually if you can achieve that. Obviously, that's a great moment. But the would you have sat there on the start line of an Olympic final and thought about your dad? No, 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 no. So it was just, yeah, like you say, it was just about the job that needed to be done, right? It's interesting that, isn't it? Yeah, it is. because, And it's fascinating because there was the famous example with the 2012 Olympics where it was, don't make Ben angry. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so it was very God. much that sense of, it, so emotion was fueling, fueling you there. Yeah. Yeah, that, but that was, uh, that was after, that was in between. So I finished the race. And I hadn't been performing very well, really, up until that moment. I was about halfway through the competition. And frankly, the Danish sailor and the Dutch sailor were sailing better. They were bigger and heavier and strong winds. They were faster. And the way things were going, I probably wasn't going to win unless I changed something. And so I kind of used that. There was an incident in a race which really pissed me off. 
and I and yeah, so maybe that's I use I certainly use that as a as a way to turn to try and turn my psyche around and, and say, no, actually I'm gonna fight back and you know, that that was out of order. In that particular race I managed to do my penalty turns and then overtake the other right. two guys and then turn around at the finish line and basically you know yeah no for, for um you know without without getting too colorful language you know explain to those you know explain that but i like I was, the idea you said that you around. had to do something different and therefore yeah. that is a very different strategy to draw on the the power of the emotion rather than just the process of of of, of just keep going through doing the same thing yeah yeah i mean there are times when it clearly isn't working right so you've got to do something yeah you can't just keep doing if you keep that in that mindset or process you're not going to win and i think yeah you do have to be able but to adapt, adapt. Into, into like an area that always fascinates me for elite performers like yourself ben is is the courage to do that you know the courage to you know if it's not working to rip it up or to throw it out of the window and try something different you know i'm, I'm interested in 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 your view on that well i think it's i think a lot of it comes back to being you know, and I think back to my sort of early days, learning the sport and learning how to compete. Uh, a lot of it, and and self improvement, a lot of it comes back to honesty. I think, doesn't it? Where if you're not honest about your ability or the way you're performing, you know, a number of times when I was growing up and I heard mates of mine saying, "They're like, yeah, I was winning that race, but then such and such happened, and I was really unlucky." You're like, hang on, that is not what. That's not the way it went down, and. You know, I sort of, sort of inwardly smile because they were sort of kidding themselves yep. that they thought their their performance was way better than the the reality. So, I was, as I said earlier, I was also almost my harshest critic, really, in terms of evaluating my performance, being really honest about how I could improve, how I could get better. And I think that then followed into the competition itself. So, if things something wasn't going well, I guess over time I became reasonably adapted, at saying, okay this isn't working pretty quickly. I've got to, got to change something here or I'm not going to get the re required result. So when you take that same characteristic outside into the real world, because that self-reflection is quite rare outside of elite sport, have you tried to adopt that same philosophy in other fields outside of? Yeah, well, it's been fascinating going from an individual sportsman to a team sportsman, which yeah. is what I've had to do in the America's Cup. You know, and I first got involved with the America's Cup in 2001, so I was 23 years old, and I got involved with a US team called One World. I then sailed for Team New Zealand for the 2007 America's Cup. And we then had a British team called Origin for the 2010 Cup, and then Oracle Team USA for the 2013 Cup in San Francisco and then moving into, into starting a British team. And so that that early career in the America's Cup was really in conjunction with the Olympic career. And so I was making that transition. And, you know, to start off with, if I'm really honest, I was rubbish at it. You know, going from being a selfish, self-focused individual, individual sports person, well, really relating to other people. Yeah. especially in a sporting environment high pressure environment and i you know set really high standards for myself and then you have those expectations of others and not that they didn't also have high standards but if someone was making a mistake rather than actually trying to support that person and 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 help them adapt and grow as a team you know quite often i just get frustrated and and not only with myself but with the team and 
and so it took a took a little while to figure that bit out if i'm honest yeah. and uh, and then now you know into this team that we've had since 2013 2014 yes yeah, again what are those processes of building a new team the challenges of the design technical challenges of the america's cup getting all that together logistics of it and then getting out on the race course and you know like i said we've got over 100 people here in the organization so that's really interesting how do you get everyone on the same page everyone focused different personalities you got a lot of really creative designers and engineers out there who perhaps aren't maybe the best communicators at times some really hungry athletes or sailors who want to just get out on the water and race and marrying all that together so that's that's really been a fascinating learning process. And how do you do that? Well, le yeah, I mean, a lot of it has been, again, trial, trial and error. A lot of it's been learning from, like I said, I was with the New Zealand team for 2007. That, that was a fantastic learning opportunity because behind the All Blacks, probably the sailing team and the cricket team are the next highest profile teams in New Zealand sport. And they take, you know, we in that team, in that in that America's Cup cycle, we did actually spend quite a lot of time training with the All Blacks and right. going between different camps and learning a lot about that organization, which was fascinating. And then going into sailing with the Oracle team for 2013, which had a lot of the key people who were from the original Team New Zealand that won the Cup in 95, and had then moved on and gone through different teams. But marrying that with a sort of an American approach to sport and a kind of completely different approach really in the end but equally successful um so trying to learn from those really and then incorporate that into into this british team the focus on failure is is an interesting one for me because when i've obviously i've grown up in television so in tv we're really nice to each other all the time we tell each other how great everything is our first ever meeting after the first grand prix that i hosted for the bbc we all sat down and the producer went into this big long ramble about how great everything was until david coulthard stopped him and said sorry sir you're wasting air and you're wasting my time. <laughs> I don't want to know ever again in a meeting about the good stuff because it's already good. I want to know about the bad stuff. And from that moment onwards, for the four years that I did Formula One and going forwards now with all the other things I'm doing, the focus on the failure, the focus on the bad is so much more useful than the focus on the good. But it's quite a rare thing. I think yeah. people like to look at the good stuff and the bad. They kind of sweep under the carpet because it's not nice to look Painful. at. Yeah. yeah. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Yeah. But obviously you've created a mindset where focusing on the failures, focusing on the bad stuff, you've realized the huge learning that can come from that. Yeah, it has to and you're you're absolutely right and you know we we had an interesting with the sailing team we went and we did some training with some special forces groups and one of the fascinating approaches that that they had and I think it really resonated with our sailors was you know when they're out in the field and they have a debrief that, you know they have to be brutally honest because it's they're in you know do or die scenarios yeah. people's lives are at stake and there can't be any niceties and i think when you look at it in that just that that level of intensity 
I think for our for our sailors, it helps to say, oh, actually, you know, we can't. We've got to be honest with another, and you know, doesn't mean to, you know there are going to be some difficult conversations, but we're far better being brutally honest. We're going to develop more as a, as a individually and as a group if if we take that approach. But one of the big mantras of like the special forces or the All Blacks or some of the other environments that you've seen and I've been fortunate enough to be in is that feedback is often on behaviours, not on personality. So it's the saying that you can behave disagreeably without being a disagreeable person. So what would you say are the behaviours that have been common to the successful teams when you've when you've integrated into them? What are the behaviours that are consistently present? Oh, well, I think, that, you know, the team ethos is absolutely key. And, and to your point, you know, people often ask me, sort of, what do you do about really super talented individuals that can't work within a team? And my experience from other successful teams and with this team is that we don't have them in the organisation because we've got 11 guys on the boat this time. We had six in the last America's Cup. And if one of those guys isn't behaving as a team player, and it doesn't matter how talented they are, it just disrupts the whole group and you and we can't, and we can't brilliant operate maverick yeah yeah i mean we don't i mean maybe it's a different it's different in our sport um perhaps i can think of maybe if you had a star striker i don't know in, in no football, i think it's but, not is it? i mean you use the phrase fifo fit in or fuck off it's yeah yeah yeah, yeah it is <laughs> <Yes>. that, I, <laughs> it's, it's true that, though isn't it That's, yeah that is it yeah and it's not just on the boat, is it? I mean, we can you can probably hear in the background, actually, they're building your boat downstairs. Yes. We can hear the drilling or whatever they're doing. I mean, you've got over 100 people here. Yeah. What are the behaviours that you see that ring alarm bells for you, not just on the boat, in an organisation? I think when you get to our scale, 100 plus people, the biggest issue is the communication. And it sounds so simple, communication. When you get to that many people, it's so hard. Yeah. And you've got lots of decisions being made at different levels in the organisation. And getting that across clearly to people what we're trying to achieve and in each department what decisions have been made what's expected of people and for sure we can be way way better you know i said we just had a team meeting and that was kind of like a we're halfway through the campaign this is our, our review and let's move move forwards what are the lessons learned and going into building and designing our second boat and one of the key things that's come up is, is communication and right. we can we can we can be better we we've got to be better so that's something i'm taking away from that do either of you think that there is there is a moment where a maverick is okay like obviously you wrote the barcelona way in the book yep. you talk about ibrahimovic signing for barcelona not fitting in and fifo they got rid of him yep. equally you may have had at times mavericks in your world where you think they're so they're so fantastic like let's take lewis hamilton is i would say lewis hamilton is a maverick yet he operates in a in an environment very similar to an america's cup team it's all about a technology-based sport trying to beat everybody else and the competition is so intense is there ever a situation where a maverick is okay well i, I think in your case of a formula one driver it probably is because it's one guy in the car doing his thing right so he doesn't matter who he pisses off because it's pardon my language again but you know he's responsible for yeah. getting that car getting maximum performance yeah he's got to work well as engineers and designers and he and you know i think the interesting thing about lewis hamilton people often say oh well you know he's in the best car so of course he's going to win well firstly he's, he's beating his teammate who from what i've experienced are pretty talented guys and, as well uh but also you know that development has come from him working with his technicians his engineers 
you know, that, and that's yep. a team game. So I think you can probably get away with it when he's in the car and he's doing his thing in competition. But when he's out of the car, he's got to, he's got to perform in terms of his, his relationship team, team with the team role, yeah. and yeah, communication. Yeah, I agree with Ben. I, I, think, I think that comes across that I think there's certain non-negotiable behaviours that every team has to sign up to. So the Barcelona example, a, like a great one, it'd be somewhere in, when they signed Suarez. And people thought that this guy was a maverick or, you know, he could be impetuous or indisciplined. But then when you speak to people that see him day after day in training, they said he's the hardest worker. He's a pretty humble bloke. He's a guy that he is a team player. You know, when he's been impetuous, he's done it to try and help the team develop. So I think they're the three non-negotiable behaviours in their world. And then you can sometimes allow some of that more maverick tendency on top of that, you know, like say in, in, in a race, that ability to see things that nobody else does yeah, is a, is a huge a advantage. You don't want to knock that out of people because that's a lot, a lot of the time where the talent comes from um, and, and wanting to display that, showcase that talent. I think yeah. like a Suarez kind of example. So it's a real fine balance, I guess, as a manager. You've got you to you encourage, encourage those superstars to do their thing, but also try and keep a strong team ethos, find, you know, again, find that balance. So what would you describe then as, in, so in your team of 11 people, what are the trademark behaviours, like the, the non-negotiable behaviours that, that you've recruited them against and that they've signed up to? Well, it's interesting. We have out of our, we have about 16, well, we have 16 guys in our, in our sailing squad and 10 of those are, are what we call our grinders who are the muscular guys who are, grinding the coffee grinders and creating the power that we need to be able to sail the boat. And if they can't create that power, then we won't be able to push the boat hard enough. It won't be fast enough. So they have to be absolutely the fittest team out, out there they can be. And then we have six guys who are more to do with the performance of the boat. So they're either, in my case, driving the boat or trimming sails or working on the tactics. You know, Giles Scott, for example, who's our gold medalist in 2016, who's our tactician and he's helping decide where the boat goes on the course. And there's a bit of a split really in, in, the, in the personalities and the skill sets. Uh, the grinders, we need guys who are phenomenal athletes really, and they're prepared to do what it takes day in, day out, like any other high performance sport, it's pretty hard grind, you know? Yeah. Training two or three times a day, day in, day out, it doesn't stop. And, uh, and they've got to be committed to that. And then the performance guys, a lot is about their their experience, what they've achieved, having been able to perform in high pressure situations. Yeah. So we know that they've got the talent, but we also know they're Olympic gold medalists or they're world champions. We know that when the pressure's on, they'll perform perform for us. They won't well in in the pressure of the America's Cup. Um, so yeah, it's sort of three key elements to it, I guess, depending on what what position they are on the boat. And if if someone's not right for the boat. How easy do you find making ruthless decisions for the good of the team? Yeah, it's, 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 well, it's never easy losing someone, having to make a decision like that. But when you're in a team environment, it's almost easier than, you know, if I was say, even though I was only racing on my own, I had other people in the team train it, uh, you know, coach and, and people that are working in, in that team. Um, so in a way, the performance was just down to me on the water and, and that was easier. When it's a group on the water and you're not performing, that's hard because you've got to make some tough decisions. 
But when you bring it back down to the team, you say this is the right decision for the team rather than individuals. And unfortunately, that individual, we've got to, got to change them out. Then, it, then it's easier if you take that approach to it. I, I get the sense that you're massively self-critical, right? You will sit and stew over things if you haven't done the job right. You yeah. don't hold back with yeah, yourself, probably, do you? Probably to a, to a fault, but yes, yeah. Are you that critical to the people around you? Or do you find that you're harsher with yourself and actually you you have to work quite hard at just editing yourself or just pulling yourself back a little bit yeah. with the people around? Because if you gave them what you give yourself, they absolutely. might not cope as you can. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And, uh, you know, as I said earlier, that's one of the early things I learned was I can't, you can't, in, in a leadership role, in managing people and, yes, set really high expectations but you've got to find, and it depends on the individual, right? Some people you can push harder than others. And it's, you've got to try and work out those guys in your team which need nurturing day in, day out, and which can take a bit of a hit and actually respond to that. And that's, that's I guess, it's a key of leadership and management. I think often we're so focused, aren't we, on the struggle, we forget to think about the end goal. Yeah. yeah. And if you haven't, what, what you don't want to do is get to, I don't know, what, you're now 42? Yeah let's say you've got another two America's Cup in you, you decide at 50, I'm done. What you don't want to do is get to 50 and think, shit, I never actually stopped and enjoyed that. <laughs> I never smoked the road. You know, I've ran my own team. I stood at a window. We, there's a window to our right now and you can see down below us, building boats, people everywhere. Do you enjoy it? Do you take the moment? I use the phrase, savour it. Do you savour it? Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. And there are times when I do have that conversation with myself that I need to re remember that because it's so all-consuming, these kind of, campaigns and every, everybody's working really really hard and you've got to support that and it's difficult it's really you know reason, there's a reason why Britain's never won it bloody hard frankly because to go up against a really good defending team like we have this time with the New Zealanders and beat them on the home patch you've, you've really got to hit it out of the park in terms of getting the right design of boat and then and sailing it to its maximum so it's really intense everyone's under a lot of pressure but you're at, and I I I try to remind myself of it daily, yeah. maybe not daily, but it has, to be, it has to be enjoyable and we have to make it fun for the people here. Otherwise, if, it's, if they're not enjoying uh, the process. I'm not talking about the people here, Ben. Yeah. I'm talking about you. For me? Yes. Do you enjoy it? Like, maybe you don't. You know, maybe you're so involved in it, you can't stop and look outside it. But Yeah, I do. When I, when I stop yeah. and think about it, I, I do. But when, so quite often when your head's in it and you've got difficult moments, but it... But I think in a way, in a perverse way, that's also enjoyable because you want to be pushed, you want to be under pressure and you want it to be hard because if it was just easy, well, that wouldn't feel the achievement going through the difficult moments um, coming out the other side and achieving the end goal, that makes it that much more rewarding. Damien sent me a message about today and he said one of the things he was most looking forward to finding out is sort of bouncing back from adversity. Would you say that the America's Cup failure in Bermuda was your the lowest moment of your career it was, de it was definitely right up there yeah it was really do you think really about tough. that every day is that an, is that almost an energy source for you now going ahead to 2021 yeah, yeah it's definitely a motivation you know in terms of you talking about career it wasn't a disappointment but it was definitely the most challenging moment in my career individually being hugely frustrated with the situation we're in but having to try and lead the team through it and like I say in the end we were all really proud of the way that the team reacted to that. Okay, we didn't win it, but we 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 improved massively as an organisation, as a team, and and I think through that set ourselves up for the, for this next challenge. Listen, we're we're running out of time quickly. A couple more things I just want to mention. We've got a quick fire round, but first, 
what still motivates you? What is this all about? Sitting here, running this whole team, all these people under you, why? Well, I come back to the America's Cup. We've never won it for Britain. That is, for me personally, that's a big motivation. I know for a lot of people here, it is as well. And the fact that we started something, so many people involved, putting a huge amount of effort into it, and not just them, their families and, and so on, the, the commitment they're putting in um, and what it would mean to them and to, you know, sport, I think, in the UK. So certainly sailing community in the UK to, to win the America's Cup would be a huge, huge moment for us. So that's... That's really why we're doing it. So what are your three non-negotiable behaviours? Commitment, resilience and team ethos. What advice would you give a teenage Ben just starting out? Learn as much as you possibly can from your coaches and your peers. So how did you react to your greatest failure? I reviewed it hundreds of times in, in my head and tried to, to learn the key lessons and, and set that straight. Not make, not make the same mistake twice. How important is legacy to you? Yeah, it's legacy is pretty is pretty key. It's something that you know you set a goal and a target. You want to you want to achieve that. You don't want to finish until you've achieved that. And I guess that's part of a legacy. And the final one. What would you say is your one golden rule for living a high performance life? Never give in. Love it. Listen, it's been a fascinating hour to sit and chat with you. Thank you so much for making the time when you've got all these people and. It feels like a long way away, two years, till the next America's Cup, but it's going to be in the blink of an eye, isn't it? Yeah, 18 months now till it's March 2021. And yeah, it's, it, we're, we're finishing off our first boat. We're building our second boat. And we've got some regattas next year, starting in Cagliari in Sardinia in April, and then through to, the, through, through to America's Cup in, in January 21. So it's going to go pretty quick, like you're saying. The team's working incredibly hard and get that cup home. Thank you very much for your time. Thanks, guys. Fascinating. And savour it, right? Absolutely. Enjoy it. Yes. <laughs> well, Ben's now left the room. How interesting was that? <laughs> I was just saying, I thought it was fascinating. I think the thing that jumped out for me was just just the saving self-awareness and self-honesty that he has. Is uh, I bet that's exhausting, though. Yeah, I was thinking I mean? that. Yeah, I was thinking how exhausting. When I asked him the question about do you actually enjoy it, that... It's hard to see this on a podcast because you can't see it, but <laughs> yeah. he, you could see this sort of flicker come across his face of like, hold on, yeah, that's an element that I perhaps haven't quite got right. Yep. And you do you do wonder what this is all for. Like, where does that burning energy to constantly do this come from? Yeah, yeah, very much. And I, I found it fascinating when we were speaking to Georgie beforehand as well, where she's spoken about being able to spot when he goes into that performance mode and you know his ability to switch between being a father and being a competitor yeah. starts to get blurred so yeah i can imagine it is exhausting for him amazing but i suppose that's part of the that's part of the thing of a, an elite mindset or a high performance mindset is actually it it might be hugely rewarding if you can nail it but actually it isn't the easiest way to to, to live is it no exactly i think that's i think that that conversation that Ben recounted that his dad had said about if you want to be average, carry on doing what you're doing, you know, or when he described that experience in the last America's Cup of we're going to come last there unless we do something different. And that willingness to go into that discomfort zone is a... Uh, That's where most people can't hard. go, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. That's it. And sometimes it's it's ego that gets in the way. Sometimes it's it's the idea of not wanting to look stupid, but... I think the fact that he's faced that down is where that idea of belief comes from. I don't know what you think, but of all of the elite performers that I've spent my career working alongside or interviewing, 
it's left me feeling that everyone can be a high performance individual. I honestly believe anyone can do that. But you have to really be able to put yourself there mentally. And that is what a lot of people struggle with. You can get there, but the amount of effort it takes is, is really quite a lot. And you, you hear from Ben, you know, right from an early age, he obviously didn't really want to say it too overtly, but he just thought differently to all the other eight, nine, ten-year-olds around him. I often think it's a really good point, Jake, and I often think of sometimes when um, I might speak to people that are like casual golfers and they'll say to me, uh, oh, can you help me with my golf game? And the first question is, well, not really, no, but tell me, uh, what's your issue? And they go, oh, I want to get better. And my first question is, well, how often do you practice? And the irony is those same people will say, oh, I don't really practice, I just play. And I say, well, you are where you are then. <laughs> you're as shit as your results <laughs> indicate. So there's one of two things, either settle for the level you're at and just enjoy playing golf as at the level you're at, or do something different train harder go and invest more time practicing if you want to get better but like you say that that willingness to push yourself and do something different goes against a lot of what our natural instincts are and that's what i think separates people like ben from from uh, from many of us i think people find it hard to be too harsh on themselves don't they i think that ben probably couldn't be harsher on himself if he tried yeah and that was see that bit fascinated me when i was asking about how, how much does he have to moderate that that critical voice when he then applies it to standards to others mm -hmm. and a sense that he's uh, that he's had to do that and it, it and he recognizes the pain that causes because like I say a lot of people don't like that self that self-reflection yeah. and interesting when he said uh when i pulled him up on the whole emotion thing because every time i tried to go down the emotion road he was like well the process <laughs> yeah. well the process yeah he's got to go there at some point though, hasn't he? Because I think emotion is probably the reason for the success. He just doesn't realise it. Yeah, but I think I, I, I think the way he's rationalised it, again, listening to him, was that he's done it in moments of desperation. When things aren't working, he, it's a well he draws on. That's his um, plan B. He's, he's an interesting guy to be in the company of though, isn't he? You, the intensity burns bright with him. Yeah, it does. But again, I'd say that like, we were speaking before we came on air about just the humility of these guys as well that there's a you know there's an ordinariness to him as well that i think it, I, I, I think that emphasizes your point that anyone can adopt this high performance mindset listen if my son grows up to be like ben ainsley i'll be a happy dad <laughs> let's put it that way um really interesting i think we both got a lot out of that and yeah, I, I hope it. that you at home feel exactly the same that that last little while listening to Ben Ainsley talk about his high performance lifestyle gives you plenty of food for thought. Thanks for listening and plenty more to come soon. Well, Damien, uh, it's nice to chat as well. I mean, it's fair to say our mailbag was overflowing somewhat this week after the chat with Frank Lampard, right? Hiya, Jake. Yeah, the reaction has been phenomenal to uh, listen, people listening to Frank. I think people have really connected with his messages, just the way that he shared... Uh, some of his thinking, who he surrounds himself with, how he comes about making decisions. And generally, his whole approach to life really seems to have resonated. So it's been really exciting and really pleasing to hear people's response to this. 
Look, if this is the first time you're listening to the High Performance Podcast, what Damien and I like to do is just sort of reflect on some of the messages that you've sent in to us. So if you've just listened to this episode with Ben Ainsley and you'd like to share a comment, please do get involved. Either leave the message and the comment wherever you get your podcasts or dive onto our social media accounts and leave them there. Damien's at Liquid Thinker. I'm at Jake Humphrey. The podcast is at High Performance. Send us your thoughts and your comments about um, Ben. We'd love to hear them, but we're reflecting on last week's episode right now, which is uh, Frank Lampard. And the nice one from um, Alex Smith, he said, to what extent can a coach or a manager inspire their players or their people to live a high performance life without living one themselves? And obviously this comes off the back of Frank saying numerous times, he, he has to live to the standard that he expects his players to perform. It's a fascinating question. And I think it comes down to the idea that people just don't follow hypocrites, Jake. And I think what Frank was saying is, in his responses about talking about being hardworking and investing in that, he's doing two things in his response. He's first of all talking in, with real transparency about his non-negotiable behaviour of you have to invest in your talent and work hard at it. And then the second thing he's doing is he's acting with consistency. That if you're a player and you see your head coach there that was renowned as a player for working hard himself, but now he's first in, he's last out, he's he's, uh, doing CPD, he's trying to develop himself and he's generally working hard to be the best coach he is. It makes it very difficult to assume that you can't do it or that his messages are very relevant to you because he's role modeling the behaviors he's asking people to do. So to summarize, yeah, people don't follow hypocrites. And there might be some of you listening to this thinking, well, you know, I've worked hard. I've got to the top of the tree. I'm in charge of a bunch of people. So it's my turn to relax and it's, it's their, their turn to work hard. I think from my perspective, it's very hard to judge whether people are fully committed and whether they're given their all and whether they are working to their limit if you haven't done it yourself. Because if you haven't been there, Damien, you can look at someone and go, yeah, I think they're, I think they're working really hard. But you kind of, you don't know what you don't know. So you've got to put yourself in that place. You've got to go to your limits. You've got to fail. You've got to take responsibility. You've got to reach your own breaking point before you understand whether someone else has got there. I think you're right, Jake. I think it reminds me of an incident many years ago when I was working with uh, one particular team and uh, we were traveling home on the coach uh, after a particular defeat and he was a novice head coach and he was really angry and upset at the reaction of some of the players on the bus that he saw that they were laughing and looked like they were having fun. And he felt that after a defeat like this, that they should be looking maudlin and upset and, um, and really down in the dumps. And I explained to him in some detail that just because his definition of responding to a defeat wasn't being matched by theirs. It wasn't that they didn't care or they weren't engaged. It was just everybody responds in a different way. And I think that's a really powerful message for people to take away from these podcasts that just because Frank Lampard talks about hard work, the way that that manifests itself for him might be different than how it manifests itself for Chris Hoy or for Ole Solskjaer that we interviewed at the start of the podcast series. This whole podcast is about getting you to see the world from somebody else's perspective, giving you the opportunity to step in to their world and see it through their eyes and understand that their definitions are relevant to them and encouraging you to think about how you can take the lessons and apply it to be pertinent and relevant to your own world. 
And what I really like when you talk about that is that we're still getting people who are listening to all kinds of different episodes. You know, we had um, Anthony Joshua, the world champion boxer, sharing on his Snapchat this week the fact that he was listening to the Robin Van Persie episode and saying, brilliant interview, get involved. We had Jimmy Dunn um, talking about how much Sean Dyche is, is motivating before training. You know, all of the different different episodes that we've recorded with people, I think they offer... They offer a, a different insight into hard work and, and into leadership, but probably with common themes. Yeah, I know that one of the things that we've both expressed a concern about is that are we worried sometimes that our listeners are hearing some of the same messages and feeling that uh, there's a degree of repetition here? And I think the point to emphasise is that every guest is different and again their interpretation of certain challenges are different so if you think back to earlier this series sean wayne's definition of how he worked hard to create a winning culture at wigan warriors is different than the way that sir ben ainsley has just described to us how he worked hard to create a winning culture with his uh, america's cup team we're giving people the clues one of my favorite quotes is that success leaves clues and we're giving you examples of people that have been successful and they're sharing the clues as to how they do it. And this isn't about people seeing them as gimmicks and how they can sort of copy other people. It's how they can take the methodology of our high performers and then apply them to the specific challenges in their own world to create high performance. All right, here's a question for you. This is coming from Dragon Whales 9. Can a leader be humble and ferocious? Wow, that's a good one. I suppose those two elements of humility and ferociousness are two separate characteristics and they don't contradict each other. So humility is accepting that we don't know things, so we know what we don't know when we're willing to open our mind up and learn and listen and ask questions of others. So that's how I would interpret humility. It's not about coming in and assuming a knowledge of a situation that we don't have. The ferociousness is an interesting one because, again, that could be defined in so many different ways. But this ferociousness of wanting to learn and wanting to improve and wanting to get better seems to dovetail with what my definition of humility is. So I absolutely agree that a leader can demonstrate humility and ferociousness without them being contradictory. Uh, Listen, mate, thanks so much for your time. Uh, As always, really appreciate it. Thank you all at home very much for listening to the High Performance Podcast. Just one last reminder, we love bringing you this podcast for free. It's how it should be. It's how we want it to be. But it does make a huge difference to us if you're able to leave a review or rate the podcast. It's hugely helpful. Um, And talk to your family, your friends, your colleagues about it. We'd love as many people as possible to just get that little bit of inspiration to start their week from the High Performance Podcast. Damien, thanks very much as always. Yeah, thank you, Jake. As always, I've really loved it and really enjoyed the opportunity to sit down with you and with the team and most importantly with our high-performing individuals and this week, Ben Ainsley, that's been incredibly generous with his time, his knowledge and his insights. So thanks for having me along. Um, A big thanks as well to Finn Ryan from Rethink Audio who worked so hard to make this podcast happen. As always, a huge thank you to Lotus Cars. You can find them across social media at Lotus Cars. It is as simple as this. Without Lotus Cars, this podcast doesn't happen. So thanks to them, thanks to Damien, thanks to everyone involved behind the scenes at the High Performance Podcast and a new episode coming your way next week. Thanks for joining us. 
Thank you.